The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello and you're very welcome to this additional Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me here in studio is our political editor, Pat Leahy. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon, Hugh. But a lot of what you will hear today was actually reported at an event hosted a few days ago by the Fine Gael-affiliated think tank, the Collins Institute. Minister for Finance, Public Expenditure and Reform, Pascal Donoghue, gave a speech on the theme of renewing the political centre. The Collins Institute asked me along and we thought we'd take the opportunity to consider what Mr Donoghue, who occupies the second most powerful political position in the land and is a rather interesting political figure in his own right, thinks about the current state of politics and about his own party's place with in that before he gave his speech. We sat down for a brief uh, conversation. But Pat, I wanted to ask you, first of all, Pascal Donoghue, you're, a, you're an astute observer of species politicus. Well, thank what, you, kind of a, what kind of a politician is Pascal Donoghue? Uh, unusual, I think, uh, in, in Ireland. Um, Pascal, I suppose, is the, he's kind of the thinker of the cabinet. He's a voracious reader. He thinks about, whereas um, Leo Varadkar has always been a student of politics and its machinations. Uh, Pascal Donoghue, uh, I, I, I think, has been a student of politics and political philosophy. So uh, he's a frequent appearer in the uh, book reviewing pages of not just uh, not just this uh, publication, but uh, others as well. He's also the most powerful finance minister, I think, since. Charlie McCreevy in the days of his pomp, in that he has, uh, since the uh, elevation of Leo Varadkar to the Taoiseach's office and the subsequent reshuffle, he has combined the roles of Minister for Public Expenditure and Minister for Finance. He heads two departments. His power ranges across government in the way that the old Department of Finance used to. And for all that, he is, as much as Varadkar himself, representative of this great generation change that has taken place in the government, in the leadership of the country. He only became a TD in uh, 2011. He's only in the cabinet since 2014. Uh, so a, a, a rise that it is fair to describe as meteoric. I think. Uh, let's have a listen to what he had to say. Minister, thanks for taking the time to sit down for a minute. Uh, I had an advanced copy of your speech. I have it in front of me. You're going to deliver it in a, in a few minutes' time. Uh, The centre or the notion of the radical centre or the notion of the centre as being something proactive, I think a lot of people will find that strange. They think of the centre of politics as being an absence rather than a presence. I think that's a very fair point, which is exactly the reason why I'm making the case in this speech for there being a centre in Irish politics that has achieved much but needs to achieve more. And to your very point, the moment you stop consciously reflecting on what the centre could be or should be, it becomes something that is generated uh, in the middle of other things. And the case I am making today is that there is a very strong intellectual and policy tradition in Irish and European politics regarding a very active centre. I think it's achieved much in Ireland, but clearly it needs to achieve more. 
Well, people say, I mean, I think at one point you've, you've referred to our own Fintan O'Toole as saying that there's an absence of ideas in Irish politics. And I, I think particularly he suggests in the centre of Irish politics. And I take a very, very different view. Uh, the, the heritage I've tried to point to in this speech and elsewhere is that the, uh, there is an intellectual heritage to, to a centrist approach to politics that makes the point that the state and economy or the state and society working collectively can achieve more than either can achieve on their own. And they are both entities that always need to be consciously debated and you need to look at how you can get each of them to do better. But isn't the danger of that is it sounds a bit like mom and apple pie? It would be very difficult to disagree with that. So where's the point of political difference there? between those either to your left or to your right? I think there's a number of areas of difference. The first one is, as I'm making the case, that the centre has delivered in some really important areas here for Ireland. If I look at the long sweep of our history, I believe the centre of Irish politics has created a policy environment for Ireland that has overhauled living standards, that has given us a degree of uh, sovereignty, a sense of progress, that it has been delivered for a young country. I think that is a policy contribution that the centre of Irish politics has made. So that would be the first area of distinction, I would argue, against many critics in arguing that this is something that has delivered for Ireland. If I look at us on an ideological level, so saying that how is this different from the left or the right, the first way in how I would argue it is different is I'd make the point that in many areas at the moment we are making progress and I think a centrist approach to political decision making has enabled that to happen. How I think we are different to the left here, it's different to the left in that I make the point that the market economy is still the best mechanic that, are av- that is available for increasing living standards, for creating the resources to improve and better public services. How I strongly differ from the right is I believe the right in politics at the moment is literally eviscerating itself in a, visc- in a, in a distaste for the idea of the state or for government. And we have seen that in many established political parties in the centre right now across the world. But not here so much. Uh, Not here, and I believe uh, that is uh, driven by a few different factors. The first thing I think it's driven by is the scale of Ireland. The fact that we are a small country means that uh, I think it is difficult to advocate hardcore ideological views in relation to the state or the economy because all of us, through either friends, family or uh, acquaintances, have experience regarding how the economy and the state can affect each of us. So I think it hasn't happened here in Ireland because of reasons of scale. I think the other reason it hasn't happened here in Ireland is uh, because we are a small country and because we are a small country in the shadow of a very, very big neighbour, Uh, it's been really important for Ireland to have an active state that's capable of shaping choices for it. Uh, And I think we've many institutions inside that state, for example, our schools, that many would acknowledge uh, have really improved versus where we were in our past. But we tend to look at this 
partly because of language and culture and history, to the prism of the Anglo-Saxon world, in, in particular, the United Kingdom and the United States, where there have been movements in the, you know, within the Conservative Party in, in the UK, the Republicans in the United States, which are far more about you know, getting the state out of people's business, uh, giving as much power as possible back to the individual, on a, on a philosophical level. Fine Gael, though, is, is it perhaps more in the tradition of European Christian democracy, which, which is a somewhat different thing, but still right of centre. Yeah, well, just to answer each of those points, uh, the first one you said there about the long-term trajectory of the Conservative Party or the Republican Party in America. Of course, the great irony of this is that each of those, particularly the Conservative Party, uh, has its basis in... Uh, in how they resist radical change to institutions, okay? Um, uh, But they are now at a point where they themselves are the apostomy of radical change to institutions by Brexit happening and by the degree to which the market economy has become so advanced in the United Kingdom. And I believe we should avoid that kind of approach here in Ireland. I don't believe there's a great risk of it, but one of the reasons I'm making a conscious case for the centre is that if you don't go and make this case, I think it is easy or a risk to get into a sense of drift, which over the long run I think can do great harm to a country in terms of Fine Gael, to answer your question. Yes, it is the case that my party is a member of the Christian democratic political ethos here in Europe which talks more about the value of a mixed economy as opposed to societies dominated by economies or economies dominated by societies. In terms of how I would characterise the Fine Gael approach on matters, um, I think on social matters, I think it's increasingly the case that our party represents the views of modern Ireland in a way that we haven't uh, for a number of years. Uh, And in relation to the economy, uh, I I would see us... uh, you know, making the case for tax reform, making the case for tax reduction in some areas, but never being anti-state. I'm always interested by how in Ireland people seem very reluctant to accept the label of, let's say, centre-right or conservative, with a small C in both cases. Some of the ideas which you'll be putting forward in this speech seem to me to be, and I don't mean a pejorative at all, pejoratively at all, quite the contrary, small C conservative. You refer to a solid state economy getting away from the boom and the bust and the auction politics of, of previous years. That seems to me to be a definition of sensible conservatism with a small C. Uh, and there are elements in which, uh, as you say yourself, sensible conservatism uh, has definitely influenced the thinking I'm putting forward. The reason why I would never describe myself as a conservative, though, is because the conservative movement intellectually has now been dominated by a view regarding the primacy of the market. And I don't agree with that approach. I believe markets are, as we've discussed earlier on, very strong uh, and successful generators of wealth. Uh, uh, But I believe the conservative movement, as we would have known it in the 1970s or 1980s, or as we might associate with figures like Isaiah Berlin, as we might associate even going further back with Edmund Burke, has been ruptured by elevating markets to a status they should Sorry for interrupting, but do you share the criticism which comes largely from the left of what is what some people call neoliberalism the intellectual movement which began in the 60s and 70s and found political expression in Thatcherism and Reaganism and certain other movements that followed. Yeah I would have a lot of sympathy for that point of view I would have a lot of sympathy for the view 
that a strength of conservatism was trying to protect institutions and trying to ensure that change to them is incremental because it can have unknown consequences that can quickly affect the welfare of people. And that wiser element of conservatism now has been successfully challenged and overridden by a view that markets are the answer to all within the conservative movement. Uh, that is a criticism that the left have offered of what has become neoliberalism. I think there's a lot of truth in that. But I think you've got to go back to the writing of people like John Gray, who in the 1990s in the UK predicted this would happen. He predicted that the free market forces that were unleashed in the aftermath of Thatcherism would hollow out the institutions that conservatism is meant to protect. What unfortunately has happened is that has reached a conclusion that is a lot bigger than I think many could have expected. And that has played out really on a supranational level rather than on a national level. Um, and that, again, is why I think it's incumbent on people like me, who are privileged to be in public office and who care about the role of ideas in public life, to make the kind of case I'm trying to make today. This is a, a conversation about broader issues rather than the nitty-gritty of politics or what might be in the budget in October. But your, your comments on a solid-state economy and your critique, and you're not the only one to criticise this, of the sort of boom-and-bust cycle, uh, that the Irish centrist project has delivered from the from Irish centrist parties over the last several decades implies a certain approach to uh, budgeting and a certain counter-cyclical approach, which we haven't seen in the past. Does that mean that really we shouldn't be borrowing money at the moment or we should be attempting to be more counter-cyclical this year and next year as we reap some of the benefits of the economic recovery? Well, I've outlined the uh, policy decisions that I'm aiming to make in Budget 2019 that do look to uh, balance our books in effect. The target at the moment is a deficit of uh, no more than 0.1% and setting up a rainy day fund, which to all intents and purposes moves us at or near a balance. For those who would say I should be doing more, the main reason why I'm not doing more to date, in other words, the reason why we haven't had an even smaller deficit or moved to surplus more quickly, is because of the scale of the capital project uh, and capital expenditure that we've now embarked upon. For this year and for next year alone, expenditure in capital projects is going to increase by 2.3 billion euro. Um, and the judgment call that I and the Taoiseach have made has got two elements to it. The first one is, if Ireland moved out of the economic crash that we were mired in for so long, but wasn't able to quickly rebuild our investment in our schools, in our hospitals and public transports, transport, not only would the recovery become short-lived, but the ability to sustain support for people to a steadier approach to budgeting would be fatally undermined. I think most people would agree with you on that, but doesn't that always mitigate, isn't that one of the political realities, that that always mitigates against the, the, the high principle of counter-cyclical budgeting? Uh, but you're trying to regain the lost ground uh, for I, all those people. And I would respectfully say that applies to current expenditure, definitely, where the view would be that you should be looking to radically reduce current expenditure or slow the rate of current expenditure growth at a time of significant economic growth. If you look at where we have been over the last number of years, the rate of current expenditure growth has been at or even slightly below the rate of national economic growth. The reason why it's different this year and next year 
is because the degree to which we're investing in productive capacity and we're investing in things that can make our economy more resilient. And of course, there's a timing issue here. What we are doing is we are significantly increasing capital expenditure here at home at a time in which the greatest unknown that we're dealing with at the moment externally will be playing out, which is Brexit. So we made the decision to deliver a significant increase in capital expenditure at the time in which we judged our external risks would be intensifying. And that, therefore, leads to the pace of deficit correction that we have. I'm intrigued that you, you, you touched in the speech on a much broader issue, which is that the moment we're in now, is that we're still in the aftermath of the crash of 2008. And people may look around and think that we've reverted to some pre-crash normality, but we haven't. What does that mean for what do you think is going to happen? in the world economy and its impact on Ireland in the next five or ten so years. So I think what it means for political parties of the centre, like Fine Gael, is that we need to rethink our assumptions. And one of the things that I'm arguing is that Fine Gael has done this. It has done this uh, very actively and in a re-energised way under the leadership of our new Taoiseach. If you look at the decisions my party has been involved in now over the last number of years... In many ways, they're unthinkable from the Fine Gael of a 20 years ago. If you look at the decisions we've made on social matters um, and the leadership that our parties look to show uh, on recent referenda. In relation to economic issues and what that means for us, um, I think what I'm really struck by at the moment is that over the last number of years we grappled with how we preserve our economic institutions, such as the euro, such as banking systems. Unbelievably difficult political decisions were made then. I think we need to be conscious of the fact that as we move into the next economic cycle, we need to be thinking about how can we make more resilient what we have now to deal with what the future could bring. And of course, this cuts to the heart of the questions you were asking me, about where we are with surpluses. Why are we investing in capital now? Should we not be doing it at a point in the future? They're part of my answer to try to deal with that question. But on a very political level, I really believe if we spent the last decade battling with how we sustain our economic institutions, we're in the middle of a similar debate now regarding our political institutions. Politically, look at the debate that's underway in relation to the European Union the future of the European Union due to Brexit. That's as much an existential debate regarding the shape of the European Union as any of the debates we've grappled with in the past regarding economic institutions. This is why the issue of Ireland and the border not coming back on our island matters so much. You're seeing other countries now grapple with issues in relation to their national political institutions. And one of the issues that I'm raising later on today, Hugh, is this issue of taking back control and regarding what the next stage of all of that is. If you take back control of your national political institutions and you still face huge economic or political challenge, who is left to blame? And these are, this is, uh, I go back to where I start, this is why we need to more consciously make the case now for the ideas that underpin the centre. Because I think they're, they're all up for play now. You'll be playing to a home crowd here this evening. Um, and uh, towards the end of the speech, you say, not surprisingly, that Fine Gael is the best vehicle for, uh, for these ideas and for, for sustaining the centre. But, you know, Fine Gael is not 
the only centrist party in Ireland. Fine Gael is not the only party which has contributed to the development of the state. Why should we see Fine Gael as being in some way the, 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 the bearer of this, of this torch? So uh, let me first be clear, I've never made the case to say that Fine Gael are the only party that have contributed to the development of the state. That would, of course, be uh, historical illiteracy from me. Uh, Fianna Fáil and the Labour Party have made seismic foundation, uh, contributions to the foundation and the success of our state. And, of course, Fianna Fáil continues to play a crucial role now in contributing to the stability of our country at the moment. But if I look to the future... Why do I believe Fine Gael are the best party to continue this spirit? Two reasons why. The first one is, is uh, I believe we can make the case to the people of Ireland regarding we're the party that have the best understanding of a modern economy in a globalised world and the kind of decisions we need to make to keep it secure and better meet the needs that we have, for, in, for example, in housing. And secondly, I think we can make the very strong case that in terms of social liberalism, in terms of the plurality within Ireland, in terms of representing people who have faith and who, who have faith but don't have religious faith, that we are the party that has best recognised that change. And interesting that you've, you've, you've touched on that a couple of times now in the course of this conversation. Is that the fundamental change between the Fine Gael of 2018, the Fine Gael of of 1998 or the Fine Gael of 1978 is the shift on social issues and liberalism. I think it's been a, a fundamental development in my party that if you look at the decisions that the party has made, for example, in relation to school patronage, if you look at the decisions the party made in relation to marriage equality, in relation to the referendum on the 8th, if you look at the decisions that the party has made, for example, in relation to gender quotas for women at election time, what we're now looking to do with our independent colleagues in relation to gender pay reporting, in relation to gender diversity, that is an agenda that my party has actually delivered in office. But one of the things I'm looking to do here today, and the Taoiseach has done now on a number of occasions, is perhaps join up those dots and make the case then for what that means for the party overall. And I approach all of this representing a constituency in Dublin Central, which is unbelievably varied, um, which is at the front, e front edge of many of the social difficulties that we have, but has also seen change and good change. And I believe the best vehicle for trying to move forward the aspirations of the people I'm lucky enough to represent and the New Ireland created in front of us. Look at the speech the Taoiseach gave this weekend in front of the Pope. That represents a sense of change in this party uh, that uh, the Taoiseach embodies, and I'm making the case for today. Minister, thanks very much. Thank you, Hugh. Pat, so that's what Pascal Donoghue had to say to me before he delivered a paper to an invited audience at the Collins Institute. For any listeners who want to hear that address, by the way, you can find it at their website, which is collinsinstitute.ie, and we're going to include a link to that in the show notes. And we will come back to some of the things he talked about in that address later, but I wanted to talk, first of all, about a couple of things that cropped up in our conversation there. I was very taken by the emphasis he puts on the way in which Fine Gael has changed, has become a party of social liberalism in two short years, he's really saying, since the departure of Enda Kenny and the arrival of Leo Varadkar. Is that the way you see Fine Gael? I think that this is the political project of this generation of Fine Gael leaders. I think it's quite a conscious project 
led by Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue to create out of Fine Gael this centrist catch-all party whose pillars are social liberalism, uh, fiscal responsibility, this which they fancy is more representative of modern Ireland and to replace as the dominant force in Irish politics, Fianna Fáil, uh, which, which kind of held that position as almost, you know, the embodiment of a goodly part of the nation for much of our history. So Fianna Fáil was the big tent of the old Ireland. They're defining a big tent for the new Ireland, the, yeah. the post Eighth Amendment referendum, papal visit. I think those, social changes those in things, general. yeah, those, you know, the social change bits, I suppose, are one of the wings that they have added to the party. I mean, you know, albeit that I do think it would be slightly unfair to Anna Kenny to say that this has happened just, you know, in the last year or two. It was a government led by Enda Kenny, after all, that uh, first of all legislated for abortion in 2013. Uh, albeit in limited circumstances, and then introduced, despite their own misgivings, it has to be said, uh, the same-sex marriage referendum in 2015. Previous leaders, uh, you know, John Bruton, Michael Noonan, you know, were rural, conservative, traditional Fine Gael. But there is that Gareth Fitzgerald tradition. There is, yeah. So this, in some respects, is a resurrection of that. And looking at that electorally as well, Gareth Fitzgerald, you know, once won 39% in uh, in a general election. Um, now, I suppose critics of Fine Gael in the period could fairly recognise that while he might have had the uh, the social liberal tradition uh, at his back, the, the, the other part of what these guys are trying to do now that fiscally responsible bit was perhaps missing from uh, from the Fitzgerald yes, government I, I remember, at least in at, at, I remember at least somebody in saying to me at some stage I'm not sure if he ever said it publicly that Gareth Fitzgerald said he really should have been in the Labour Party rather than Fine Gael uh, this was in the in the twilight of his of his of, of his life probably and Gareth Fitzgerald's economic you know tendencies were probably slightly further to to the left than are those of Pascal Donoghue and Leo Varadkar. Mm, yeah, well, we, we'll we'll have to get Garrett in to interrogate him uh, on, on that. There's, there, um, there, there's a substantial archive in the Irish Times on this matter. Uh, very substantial, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think kind of looking at it electorally, you know, what the opportunity that they aspy for Fine Gael is amongst the metropolitan liberals, metropolitan and, and largely urban Liberals who would previously have been Labour voters, but uh, for whom the Labour Party uh, is is no longer, it appears, uh, a, a destination of choice. But also, I think the economically motivated voters that Bertie Ahern made his own over the course of his extraordinary political success in winning three elections. You know, one of one of my many theories about that period in Fianna Fáil is that there was a natural decline in that big old catch-all Fianna Fáil vote. The traditional, the idea that you would have, you know, 10 Fianna Fáil votes in a house and that voters were Fianna Fáil families by, uh, by, by tradition. That had, in fact, completely evaporated as you would expect that sort of tribal voting 
to evaporate, just as it had many of the other big catch-all European parties. But what Bertie managed to do was he disguised that natural decline of Fianna Fáil's 40% in every election vote by essentially buying the votes of those economically minded voters with their own money. And that's one of the reasons why they deserted Fianna Fáil in, uh, so quickly and so abruptly in that 2011 election when Fianna Fáil, let us not forget, lost three quarters of, or lost a quarter of all the votes cast um, in that election coming from 42% down to 17%. Uh, so uh, so I think that there are those, you know, non-aligned, non-political, economically minded voters out there. And I think they're being targeted by uh, by Fine That's Gale really interesting because there, there are a couple of really interesting parallels there. One is, of course, the Pascal Donner, who is a TD for Dublin Central, which is Bertie O'Hearn's old constituency, which is a very socially mixed constituency, ranges from, you know, the north inner city, which is in the news a lot for, for unfortunate reasons, to sort of middle class areas such as, you know, Drumcondra and, and Glasnevin. So he has really not just taken on the mantle of Bertie O'Hearn at a national level, but almost at a constituency level. And the other point... It's a very different, different animal people to Hearn, to be honest. But one thing, one parallel that he that he does have, I suppose, is he has the on the ground experience in that, as you say, very mixed constituency. And I think a good deal of Pascal Donahue's political philosophy was generated not out of the the dozens and dozens of books uh, uh, he reads, which he will tell you if you ask him, but uh, but from his experience in defending the austerity policies of that government on doorsteps in Dublin Central, first when he was just a backbencher between 2011 and 2014 and afterwards as a minister. And he speaks, he has spoken of this in the past, of the formation of his political consciousness, knocking on doors that were ravaged by the election, as many households in that constituency and indeed others were during that period and defending the austerity policies and concluding, as he now references in almost every speech that he does, that the overriding priority for any Irish government, or at least the ones that he'll be part of, is that they will not return to that boom and bust uh, scenario because he has seen the real human cost of it on the uh, on the doorsteps. And that, I think, is part of what he's talking about in this. Now, we, we danced in our conversation, we danced a little bit around this question of what is the centre and what is the centre internationally and what is the centre in Ireland and what's centre right. And uh, as, as always, it seems to me with Irish politicians, even those of the centre right, they seem reluctant to identify themselves as centre right or, God forbid, conservative, even with a small c. But essentially, Fine Gael is the most centre-right of the large political parties in Ireland. That's the, the position on the political spectrum left to right that it occupies. Yeah, well, of course, you know, I mean, in, in, in his paper, Pascal Donoghue talked about, you know, this is, you know, the, 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 the intellectual, uh, you know, the intellectual forebears of the centrists and, you know, and is seeking to provide an intellectual justification. For Adam Smith and Edmund Indeed, Burke and yeah, so on. Yeah, uh, but... You know, I think you could argue that Irish governments have historically been all largely centrist. And this isn't because we have been overrun with uh, devotees of Adam Smith and Edmund Burke. I think it's because the big two parties and and, and, and indeed the half party that made up our system of the two and a half parties of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and Labour that dominated government for uh, for 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 so long in uh, uh, in this country 
were all essentially centrist parties, perhaps of different leanings. I, I suppose there would have been a more of a left-wing element or a left-wing influence in Fianna Fáil party because of its uh, of its history. But essentially, one of the you know one of the consequences of this was that it, it you got this great policy continuity between governments, which is one of the things that makes it attractive for uh, for multinationals. Uh, and that was that it didn't matter who was in government, the essential pillars of economic policy. Didn't uh, didn't change, and that's because rather than I think uh, there being an intellectual dominance of centrism in Irish politics, it was rather more that it was based on compromise between all the political and the non-political players, you know, the very strong interest groups that have always been such a part of Irish politics in the professions, the farmers, the trade unions, uh, business groups and that. And, and I, you know, I think government policy has largely always been a compromise between all those groups. And that's why we have had a centrist politics, the achievements of which Pascal Donoghue lauds. Now, the traditional criticism from the left, and Pascal Donoghue did make reference to this after uh, after he gave his paper the other the other day, has been that this kind of that sort of pragmatic approach to problem solving, whatever the problems might be, in a consensus way, masks ideology. And one of the things he said in the conversation afterwards was that um, people in his position on the political spectrum are always accused of having an ha- having an ideology, whereas people on the left have ideas. And I think. I think one of the things he was trying to do with what success we, we, we should wait to see was to put forward the idea that the centre has ideas and the the reason he is he says that he's putting that forward is because the political landscape, not just in Ireland, in fact, not so much in Ireland, but in other places, is being overturned and the traditional centre of gravity as it existed in European countries in the United States and elsewhere is in a huge state of flux. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I think it would be wrong to say that there is no ideology in the uh, in in the centre, whatever the the happenstance that has made it, you know, the dominant way of governing in Ireland is or not. But uh, you know, to me, uh, and it's certainly true that the you know the achievements of the political centre, the post-war settlement in many European countries, the balance between Christian Democrats and Social Democrats, that has been turned on its head uh, in uh, in many places. But there's also a reaction to that. There's a kind of a, the, you know, there's a counter-offensive or a counter-revolution of that. And you see that in people like Macron uh, in in France. So it's not, you know, the things that he, are, that he is talking about are not, certainly not, unique to Ireland. To me, a lot of what Pascal Donoghue talks about in in the paper and in the the interview with you sounds a lot like like sounds a lot like Blairism uh, in, in a way that marriage of market, the energy and resources produced by a market. Uh, economy to the ends of 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 social liberalism of social inclusion of a state that intervenes uh, in society but but tries to stay out of the market as much as it possibly can. Well, he's, I suppose it's impossible to have one of these speeches without Thomas Piketty being mentioned these days and his analysis of the current condition of 
late stage capitalism which we're in, which essentially, and here's my idiot's guide to it, is that increasingly uh, wealth and power is concentrated in the hands of those who hold capital at the expense of those who earn wages in one, in one, one way or another, that, that capital yields better revenue and results and um, wages have, have stagnated for many years. And I was interested in the speech that um, Pascal Donahue's remedy for that was not, as some people would suggest, rebalancing taxation to tax wealth more and tax wages less. It was to spread the assets more widely. You know, I think this is where, uh, you know, we really we, we really should have Pascal Donahue here because we could ask him, well, that's all very well, but what are you going to do uh, about it? You are, after all, the Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure and the, uh, the, 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 the fine words... Uh, in promotion of the radical centres all very well, but in the coming weeks uh, will will be uh, Pascal Donoghue will face decisions uh, about exactly those things, about redistribution, you know, about taxation, where to tax and who to tax, in what what manner. Those, you know, uh, words are fine, but actions are the currency of government and also the ultimate political tool, is 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 the power of executive action? So really, Pascal Donahue will have his um, uh, will have his uh, the, an opportunity to put his money where his mouth is, or to put your your and mine money uh, where his where, where his mouth. Well, it's is, his money too, to be fair. Yeah, yeah I, I think yeah, some of those some of these these ideas that that he raised in uh, in 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 the paper are are interesting. I'm not necessarily sure they're a signpost to immediate government. Action, but you know, we talked about you know the move from redistribution to predistribution. You know, yeah, just, if, if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, that was that was a, a trope made uh, made popular by Ed Miliband back in uh, the day, wherever uh, wherever it ended up. But I, I think what it goes to show is that Pascal Donahue is kind of a thinker about uh, about politics, as I mentioned earlier, and. Uh, now, how far that will get him in the construction of a budget or not is another matter. But he's a thinker, but he's also. Um, certainly the second most powerful politician in the land. Um, uh, and he has control up to a certain degree of of these decisions. Everything that he said and says at the moment uh, leads me to expect incremental change, no big shocks, no rabbits out of hats, commitment to long-term plans as opposed to short-term fixes. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. And everything he said about the budget before and our budget process, even though we have this reveal on budget day, the budget process is a lot more transparent than it used to. So the government has laid out in a number of statements the parameters within which it will confine itself. Now, within that, there is room for manoeuvre. What about rabbits out of hats? I think that there will be measures taken. There will be revenue raising measures taken on budget day to enable further spending because given the constraints that the government has applied to itself to run a broadly balanced budget next year to spend uh, much of the available money on uh, on capital infrastructure, the spending commitments it has already made in terms of the increases in public, uh, in, in current expenditure, not least amongst them commitments to public sector pay and the, you know, the ongoing uh, rising cost in in health and, and education and social welfare due to demographics. All of those things coming together give the government actually very little room to manoeuvre on uh, on budget day in terms of new 
policy initiatives. That was the same last year. And what Pascal Donoghue did in last year's budget, uh, which was, to my mind, you know, the the most surprising, the most radical thing that had been done in any of the previous several budgets was uh, he raised, uh, I think, four or five hundred million, possibly more, possibly six hundred million with a, a big increase in stamp duty on commercial property. And that gave him the scope to do other things like cut taxes on the so-called uh, squeeze middle in terms of rising the, raising the, uh, the, the level at which people pay the, uh, the higher rate of tax. I think he will do something similar this year because there are things he wants to do, policy levers that he wishes to pull, as do all politicians. But I, I think he wants to do those things, finds himself constrained by the uh, by the fiscal parameters he has adopted himself in the uh, in 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 the cause of no return to boom and bust but he will still want to do things so i think on budget day i think he will he will raise money in places and spend it uh, in places so it should be enough to keep us on our toes and some of that will be revealed in just a few short weeks pat thanks very much for coming in and that is it for this edition of inside politics thanks to pat and thanks also to pascal donahue and to our producer declan conlon remember you can subscribe to us on itunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be and you can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts uh, we always welcome your views you can get me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on twitter but until the next time thanks for listening 